The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. It's good to see you. Please take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll keep marching through this great letter from Paul, and we'll be beginning in verse 23, reading all the way, actually, to through 11, to just 11.1. I think the break from 10... 33 into 11.1, you know, the, the chapters and verses and breaks were not originally there. So those aren't inspired by God. And this is one of those areas where like, man, that was an odd place to, to change, you know, directions. But we're going to read it all together because it all fits. And really what, what we're about to do, I, I think, as we read God's word, we're about to read God's supernatural word to us. And as we read this, it is by far more significant than anything I'm actually going to say today or, or ever. This is how central and how powerful and how important God's word is. And the only helpful things that you'll, you will hear today is if anything I say helps you understand God's word and is in harmony with God's word. And if it's by his grace and by his power, they'll we'll understand who he is and what he's asking of us. And then a little bit before, before we came in, and then we'll make much of Jesus. So I just want us to continue to see the power and significance and supremacy over God, of God's word over our entire service and, and over our lives as we gather. Because I think one of the greatest needs in our generation and the coming generation, one of the greatest dangers is a low view of God's word. And if we have a low view of God's word, we double down on a low view of God, which then we will ebb right into normalizing sin and celebrating sin and not care about holiness, and then we're in big, big trouble. So let's stand together in honor of Jesus and listen to his word. Beginning in verse 23, the Spirit says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor." Eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, now would you help us by the Spirit of Christ to receive your word and that your double-edged sword would begin to pierce through the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that we would be changed and convicted and that we would be encouraged by your great grace for us in your son. So now, Jesus, would you move among us by your spirit and may we sense your presence and live in light of who you are now. And it's in your awesome name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. I love playing games with my kids. Oliver is just more like Chase right now, 18-year-old or 18-month-old. Uh, whew, man. It's really, my life flashed before my eyes real fast. 18-month-old. And so it's a lot of Chase, a lot of peekaboo. But Ivy... Um, we'll play all kinds of silly games and still play Simon Says. That game has not gone extinct. That game is still around forever, and it's a blast to play when you're Simon, and it gets really boring when you're playing with a six-year-old and you're not Simon. Um, I remember playing with her one time recently, 
And she's Simon, and I'm like, okay, I'll touch my nose again. I'll act like I'm picking my nose again, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I just got lazy, and I got tired, and then I, I messed up. And she goes, oh, oh, Papa, you didn't pay attention. I didn't say Simon says you have to follow the leader. You lost. And that really stung right then. And I think, I don't know why I thought about that this week when I thought about this passage. We must remember that as Christians, we are following the leader. Living and living by faith and doing by faith what Christ says in his word. This is exactly what Paul is saying at the end of 11 and the beginning of this, beginning of chapter 11, the end of the section, be imitators of me, which that would be bizarre if he ended right there, but he doesn't because he says, as I imitate Christ. So he's telling the Corinthians, follow me. I am one of your leaders, but we are following the main leader. We're following Christ. And the Corinthians have forgotten where to look and who to listen to. Because if you look at the beginning of verse 23, you see these quotes, all things are lawful. These are their quotes. They're saying, the Corinthians say, this is how we live. So we can eat meat at the market. We can eat meat in the temple. Who cares? Who cares if it injures anyone, hurts anyone? All things are lawful. And Paul is interacting with their statements. And this begins all the way back in chapter 8. He has been dealing with meat offered to idols and the idolatry and how it's wounding other Christians through chapter 8, through chapter 9, and now through the end of chapter 10. When I think about that, something that seems very minuscule to us, it's just meat. Come on. We ought to pause and look at that and go, what are we zooming past that we aren't giving any thought to in our lives? What are we just going, yeah, I'm sure it's fine, and we're just going right ahead, where Paul says, no, we need to slow down because whether we eat or drink or whatever we do must be all to the glory of God. And what Paul does in this section is he gives them a a portable Christian ethic for the whatevers of life. Paul doesn't just teach the Corinthians about the meat offered to idols, what to do with it. He gives them a grid. He gives them an ethic. He gives them a way to think. And he gives them a way to process all the issues that we'll face in the Christian life as we interact with Christians, as we interact with non-Christians. You can see this really at the end of 33. He says, I try to please everyone. Well, who are the everyones? That's in 32. Give no offense to Jews, give no offense to the Greeks, and to the church of God. So Paul's giving them a grid, an ethic for how do I operate among the Jews and, and their codes of conduct and their ways of religion? How do I operate among the Greeks? How do I operate amongst the church of God? Paul is giving them a way to think about the entire life. He's discipling them. He doesn't just teach them how, he doesn't just give them a fish. He teaches them how to fish. He doesn't just, okay, here's how we should resolve this meat offered to idols issue. He says, here's what you should do. And let me show you how this plays into really all of life. Because what does he say in verse 31? Whether you eat meat offered to idols Drink, that's what you would do when you eat, unless you're some kind of weirdo, you eat and drink together. Or whatever you do. So Paul just takes it and Paul blows it up. Paul takes it to the stratosphere and says, this principle now applies to the entire realm of life. Whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. We need to learn this portable Christian ethic. It's really a gospel framework for all of life. The whatever of life, the whatever. You can fill in the blank, anything. Identify whatever, put it in. The aim of the Christian, the bullseye, is in that whatever, in that blank, Christian ethic, I'm gonna glorify God. However you, whatever you drive, however you drive, glory of God. How you treat the server at the restaurant, it must be to the glory of God. How you do the dishes when your kids have spilt stuff everywhere to the glory, you gotta do it to the glory of God. This ethics and how we think and our morals and our standards and how we operate, this is a part of discipleship. This is just asking, what must I turn from? What must I change? What must I do? Because Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord. And I've shared before the, how I you know, was having these kind of moonshine secret candy bar runs in my marriage. And I was eating healthy, and I was eating candy bars on the side, doing this just ridiculous stuff. And I went to the grocery store this past week. I felt like I could handle it. And I went, and I'm standing in line, and I'm looking at them, and I'm just tempted. 
I'm thinking, I really want that, but I'm supposed to be eating healthy and working out. What, like, what, what am I doing? And I remember looking at them, like, I'm going to do this. And then this, the same phrases come into my head, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And really, is Jesus Lord of my life or not? And that's, that, you take that question, it, you apply it to anything. You and your spouse are having an agreement and or a disagreement, and you know you're wrong, and she knows she's wrong, but you're, you're not syncing up. And so someone's got to say, is Jesus Lord of my life or not? Will I humble myself? Will I confess my sin? Or will I just keep operating this way? This spans to all of life, this, this ethics system. It spans all of life, from pro-life causes to holding firm to God's design for marriage and sexuality, for standing firm on religious liberty, for fighting against racism. It spans these major cultural issues, and it goes all the way down to getting your spouse a drink when you just sat down and they just asked you. I think Natalie loves to ask me right then. It's because she wants me to grow in Christ. Right when you sit down, oh, before you sit down, I just sat down. Can I have some ice water? Okay. This is a part of discipleship. The crucified and resurrected Galilean drives our lives. The gospel's our ethic. It's our way of life in all of life. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul is showing us how to follow and how to live in light of our leader, Jesus of Nazareth. And the first thing that Paul shows us and shows them is that we must be actively, intentionally, and lovingly building others up. As he addresses this meat offered to idols issue, he says, you must actively, intentionally, and lovingly build build others up. Look at verse 23. He says, all things are lawful. So this is something they have said to Paul, something that a phrase in Corinth, and Paul wants to interact with it. And he says, but... So he's affirmed, yes, that, that is true. You're, you're free to eat the meat offered to idols. You're, you're free to have a glass of wine. You're, you're free to do all these kinds of Christian liberties. You're free. But you must recognize and see not all things are helpful. There will become time when that is not good in the moment. All things are lawful, yes, but not all things build up. So you see Paul's insistence. Your Christian liberties aren't just so you can do whatever you want. They're so that you can build others up. Your Christian liberties and my Christian liberties are never meant just for me. They're meant so we can serve other people and love other people and build others up. And this is why he's talking about, you guys, they're eating meat offered to idols, and they think it's no big deal, and they're wounding their brothers and sisters who are tempted towards idolatry. And Paul says, you don't realize that this is not helpful. You're missing out on the point of your Christian liberty. He's giving them a new ethic. Look at what he says. He expands it. How are things not helpful? How, how are these things not building up? Verse 24 is the teasing out of how these things are not helpful. Let no one, verse 24, seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Saying you're seeking your own. You're seeking just what's for you. You're seeking just what's good for you. And Paul says, that's not how Christians operate. We seek the good of others. Verses like this are way painful. They are like a theological and biblical dead leg. You know what a dead leg, when you get dead legged? I remember being in high school, thought of this the other day, ran to a guy I went to high school with. Be standing in the hallway, guy run up to you, just bam, just hit you right in your thigh for no reason, just with, your, with his knee, and you just fall to the ground like, oh, I can't even walk. My leg just went dead. This verse is a biblical dead leg. It's cutting your pride and cutting your legs out from under you and saying, do not seek your own good. When? When when is it? Never. We are never first. I remember my daughter went to this uh, little school in Tomball, like a little two-day-a-week thing, and it was called Joy School. Over there at Christbridge Fellowship. Joy School. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, it stands for something. I was like, what does that stand for? I saw it one day. It stands for Jesus first, others second, you last. That's exactly what's happening here. Do not seek your own good, but the good of others, your neighbors. Christians seek their good first. 
non-Christians, Greeks, Jews, Paul says later, family members, your kids, seek the good or advantage, is the other way this word's being used, the, the building up, the bettering of others. And you can see how this applies to the meat being offered to idol situation. The same thing that Paul says in chapter 8. If it wounds my brother, I'm not going to do it. But Paul then takes it another step further, that you should seek to build up your brother. Not just cut out what will hurt, but what can I put in that will build up? Paul's saying, I'm not going to seek what's best for me first, but for others. And this word seek, it's really easy to just read this verse and go, okay, I should do what's better for others than just for me. The word seek is huge. The word seek, I feel like, is like a dead leg to the other leg. No. It's not passive. You don't seek the good of others just when you stumble upon an opportunity. Oh, there's a window to build someone up. Okay, I guess I'll insert myself right there and try to build them up. Or I'll I'll sacrifice something when it's convenient and to do it. No, the word seek changes the whole dynamic and tenor of the passage, the frequency. It's active. I'm seeking, I'm looking, I'm scanning. How can I build this person up? What can I do? It's it's aggressive, it's not passive. What can I do? I'm seeking, strategizing, sniffing around. How can I build this person up? The word seek makes me think of bloodhounds. And maybe it's because I saw Fox and the Hound recently on Disney Junior, I don't know. (laughs) And these bloodhounds, they, they get a whiff. And they're, go, go, boy, and they're gone. They're just gone, and they go after it until they get it, they seek it until they find it, and they don't give up. And as Christians, have we not received more than a whiff of Christ seeking our good above his own? Of his grace and mercy and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sacrifices his life on the cross for our sins, yielding up his life, losing his life of his own account, granting us new life at the expense of his death. And now we cannot be the people who say, I'm after me first. That's very American. And it's very unchristian. And I think what we're learning in our culture more and more, as Dr. Russell Moore says, we are Americans best when we are not Americans first. And we are Christians living in America. What Paul is showing us here is that the blood of Christ turns us into bloodhounds for building others up. Sniffing and seeking how to actively build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. So this means we will begin thinking far less, what's in it for me? Which I know is a driving force in our decision making. What's in it for me? How does this benefit me? Why in the world would I want to do that? And it flips it all into saying, what can I do for them? What's in it for them? How can I benefit them? How in the world can I not do this? It changes everything altogether. And can you imagine a place where that's happening, where everyone is thinking, how can I bless them? How can I build them up? That place is meant to be the local church. That's God's vision anyway. Paul dealt with why the Corinthians shouldn't be eating meat offered to idols in the temple in last week's passage, as Pastor Barry preached that so well. He tells them, because you're eating, you're eating at the table of demons. You can't participate in the table of demons to participate in the table of Christ. And then Paul wants to help them think through two other scenarios. And how do I actively, intentionally, and lovingly build others up? So what are the other scenarios? Look at verse 25. So you can see how after he says, verse 23 and verse 24, okay. Uh, maybe let's just not eat the meat offered to idols altogether. Let's cut it out. Let's boycott the meat market. No, that's not a strategy. That's never a strategy of the gospel, really. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So here's what would happen. You would have the meat being offered in the idol's temple, Paul, and they would have banquets, and you could eat there. Anyone could go, it's like a restaurant. You can go and eat there in Zeus's temple. Paul says, do not eat there. Don't eat there. Well, what about the meat offered in the market at H-E-B? You can eat that. Almost everything that was being sold in the meat market would have gone through the channels of the idol's temples. So it was unavoidable. So Paul's strategy is not, guys, you should open a Christian meat market. 
That's not a strategy. And why not? Because look at verse 26. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The entire earth belongs to God. So just because that brisket went through Zeus's temple, that brisket still belongs to the Lord. That's still his. It all belongs to Christ. So he's telling them in verse 25, you don't need to ask, even if your conscience bothers you about it. You have no, you are not expected to ask the butcher or the cashier, did this come from Zeus's temple? I need to know. Was this fair trade? I mean, you don't have to do those things. And he gives them a theological reason. He's quoting from Psalm 24. The earth is God's and everything in it. Every cow is God's. Every lamb is God's. Every chicken is God's. It doesn't matter if it went through the temple and now you're buying it just for sale on the market to eat in your house. That sizzling plate of fajitas is from Jesus. It doesn't matter. So buy it, eat it, and glorify God. God, you made the yummy cow. Thank you. That's exactly it. And this is way un-American Christian thinking. If this were happening today, what American Christians would want to do is to whine and complain, and then they'd write a Facebook post on it bashing the vendor. This guy sells meat from Zeus's temple. Let's boycott him. But that is not a strategy of the gospel. And it never works. You see, Christians, let's boycott Starbucks. Okay. Like, that's really going to hurt them. Boycott Disney. Yeah, right. You get a free trip to Disney World, you know you're going. (laughs) These are not strategies of the gospel. They are passive-aggressive works of the flesh. Just eat the meat. Just drink the coffee. Just enjoy the movie. Because whatever you do, you can. There is a way to do it for the glory of God. Except for one caveat, one asterisk, if doing such a thing will tempt someone to sin. And that's verse 27. Look at 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, so now he goes, okay, it's just you buying meat in the market, fine. Well, what if an unbeliever invites me to dinner and you are disposed to go? You want to go. He says, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Just eat it. You don't have to ask the dinner guest, did you get this from the temple of Zeus? You don't need to do that. Why? Well, one, that's rude. That that is a proper Christian ethic. Don't do things that are rude. That's like super simple and very supernatural. Don't be rude. Imagine a coworker invites a Corinthian Christian over for dinner. He accepts the invitation and he asks. They sit down. You know, the wife sets it down, gives him silverware. Thank you very much. Um, Before we eat, I need to know, well, the meat you're providing me, is that from a pagan temple? That's very rude. And the other reason why it's rude, you are stiff-arming the generosity and kindness of this unbeliever on a non-essential, non-gospel belief. You will immediately send the message and signal to them. They'll be thinking, I guess he's too spiritual to eat with us. I guess he's not the kind of people that, we're not the kind of people he likes to be around. He thinks he's better than us. That is the exact opposite of what Jesus Paul's point here is that we don't have to let the issues of our conscience bubble to the surface and put them on others. So we make our point, just so we can make our point. Sometimes we need to stand for truth and stand for things. They ask you, hey, what do you think about this meat that's being offered to idols? You should say something. You know what? I, I don't, because the fullness of the earth belongs to the Lord. I think it's just me. I don't think those idols are real because then there's only really true one and living God. And then you get to the gospel. But Paul's saying, you don't have to come out and start being an apologist for meat being offered to idols amongst unbelievers. The way we talk among Christians is very different. And I think this also applies when we think about what's happening in our culture with same-sex marriage. We don't need to become cultural apologists among unbelievers. But we need to be standing firm on God's word among believers. The way we talk about this issue in-house and the way we talk about it out in the world is way different. We stand for truth. We don't chicken out. But that's not a priority for us. The priority will always be the gospel. And we cannot let other things we need to talk about become the main thing, because the main thing is still Christ crucified and risen from the dead. 
And that's what Paul's saying. This meat offered to idols is important, but we cannot let it become the main thing we talk about among unbelievers. Now, what if they tell you, look at what he says. But what if someone says, verse 28, this has been offered in sacrifice. So someone leans over and says, hey, Bill, this has been offered at the idol's temple. He says, well, don't eat it. Big point here. Who is the someone? What someone says. Who's the someone? We have no idea in the text who the someone is. Two likely options from everything I've read. One, that it's a Christian. It's a Christian at the dinner who who they struggle with idolatry. And they are from Zeus's temple, their background, and they would struggle to eat it. And so they're telling you, thinking that you know what to do, that, hey, I don't know what to do. This meat was offered. I really struggle with that. You know me, Bill. I don't know. So what should this guy do? He said, okay, well, let's not eat it. We'll, We'll be fine. They got like a vegan option over there. Let's go over there. That would be perfectly fine to do. Paul says don't eat it. Because what we often, and I know I feel my reflex is, okay, well, we're in line for the buffet, Bill. We've got 30 seconds. I'm going to change your entire worldview in 30 seconds. Are you ready? (laughs) That's not going to happen. Discipleship takes time. And what we have to be willing to do is to give people time give people time and space to rethink their lives. This is a great thing about Christianity is that we should be patient people. Because our God's been so patient with us, we can be patient with others. That standing in line is not the time to disciple someone on how to handle the meat offered to idols. So Paul says, don't eat it. The other option, which I think, and they're both super likely and both very possible. The second option, I think it's maybe the host of the party and one of the unbelievers at the party. And they tell you, because they know you're a Christian, they know you follow Christ. And they tell you, hey, we just want to let you know um, that this meat was bought through Zeus's temple. We got a discounted rate. And it's, it's great quality meat. I only got the best for the party, but I know another Christian. I know that bothers them. So I just wanted to let you know. They're just trying to be kind because they think that's something you struggle with. And Paul says, don't eat it. There's not the time to tell them. Let me tell you why it's okay. Paul says, just let it go. Don't eat it. Maybe they know another Christian who doesn't like to eat meat offered to idols, and it tempted them. So they're trying to be kind to you. And if you refuse, if you go, no, it's fine, it's fine, I'll eat it. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't say, oh, no, no, I'm cool. Go ahead and give me that rack of ribs. We'll be fine. Paul says, don't do that. One, you're refusing the kindness of the host, and you're making them feel dumb. And then you make the other Christian who struggle with it, make them look dumb or odd, all because I want meat. See, God is giving us a new paradigm for how we interact with people. We should not be thinking first, can I do this or not? But thinking first, am I building others up? Am I tearing others down? Am I unnecessarily offending There will be things that are unavoidable offenses, things that we just cannot, we will not let go, we will not stop talking about. Those things we cannot curtail, but there are some things in our lives that we have to go, this is unnecessarily offending. Because if those things are happening, it's not glorifying to God. It's not actively, intentionally, and lovingly building others up. And it doesn't fit into the second aim of our Christian ethic of the all-inclusive aim of glorify God. Look at verse 30. Well, actually, beginning in verse 29, Paul asks all these questions. So he says, don't eat it, don't eat it, in, in this one scenario. And then verse 29, when I first read this, I thought it seems like Paul is saying, like, we shouldn't let our liberties and conscience be run over. But look what he says. I do not mean your conscience, but his, the guy that said something. And now he asks these questions. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? You can read that in a tone that's not Paul's tone. You could read that in a way and thinking, yeah, that's right. That's not what he's doing. It's more rhetorical asking, you're noticing that my conscience and my liberty is being determined by someone else. You're probably wondering, why are you doing that? If I partake with thankfulness, they're thinking, I prayed before I ate the meat. I'm fine. I said, God, thank you for this food. Bless it to the nourishment of my body. Amen. We're fine. So why am I being denounced? If I partake with thankfulness, why? But why? So Paul's asking these questions because he knows it's what they're thinking. And he tells them, so why am I doing this? In verse 30 and 31, 31 is the answer to 29 and 30. 31 is the answer to 29 and 30. Paul says, here's why I do this. So 
Why am I letting these things happen? Because for so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why curtail my liberty? Why let go of my rights? Why sacrifice things in my life for the glory of God? To honor God, to make much of Jesus, to win this person, to evangelize this person. That's Paul's point, that we glorify God when we sacrifice and lay down what is good for us. We lay down our, the pursuit of our betterment, our rights for the good and building up of others. And to not do that, to keep self at the center and to fight against others and to argue and to have talk and to become talking pointy and, and to make sure that we're seen as right. Paul says it does not glorify God and that is sin. To glorify God is to live in alignment with who God is. It's to live in alignment with who God is and to live in alignment with what God says in his word. And Paul takes this concept of glorifying God in all of life, and he doesn't limit it just to meat being offered to idols, but he injects it into all of life. Do whatever you do to the glory of God. That is the driving impulse, aim, bullseye, trajectory of the Christian in every scenario. Glorify God. And when I read this verse, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, I immediately feel how massive of a failure I am. And you ought to as well, or you're not in tune with your life. You ought to hear that verse and go, I am a major failure. I have sinned in a million ways. You haven't just broken a few commandments. Whatever you do, and if it is not to the glory of God, we have sinned, and we have, as Romans says, fallen short of the glory of God. This is the essence of sin not doing whatever we do to the glory of God. So we hear this verse, and we should really hear a, a prime example of how sinful and in need of Jesus we are. And at the same time, quickly, you hear this verse, and you hear, man, I have really messed up. And at the same moment, not missing a beat, you should immediately think, and how amazing is Jesus? that he did whatever he did and whatever he does right now at this very moment. He is alive, sitting on the throne, ruling over the universe, and he does it all for the glory of God. You take my massive amount of failure for not living for the glory of God from the moment of my birth to even 30 years old now, and I, you and I have a birth certificate, a death certificate, a finite amount of sin that we can ac accumulate. But Jesus is alive now. And he is righteous and holy and perfect, and his righteousness is unending. And so he is still doing whatever he does, and he does it to the glory of God. And since Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins, paying, paying for all the ways that all of our whatever you do's were not for the glory of God, he took them and he gave us all of the whatever he does for the glory of God, switches place, and now our lives bring glory to God. Now we are forgiven and now we're freed. And now because of Jesus, now we're learning to live for the glory of God in the whatever we do from the gospel, from Jesus. Not on our own strength, not on our, on our own accord, but we imitate Paul as he imitates Jesus. We follow the leader. 1 Corinthians 10.31, that whatever you do, this brings a new ethical framework for believers. How do I make much of Jesus in this scenario right now? How do I make much of Jesus, honor him, live for him in this scenario, in this situation, in this conversation, in, in this moment? How do I do this? And I will give you, give you two angles. One's a wide angle, one's very narrow, very specific. How do I glorify God? One's more positive and one's more, more negative. We'll start with the, the positive, the wide angle. You can really glorify God, what this verse says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. All the mundane things of life, you can glorify God in that. And by enjoying it, by eating it with a heart of thankfulness, by recognizing his masterwork as the creator of the universe. I mean, just think about music. This is fascinating to me. Music can make you feel things. 
You know, ever think about that? It's just sounds. And yet, you can get goosebumps from sounds. Certain notes and, and beats and volume and tone and scent, you get this sense of sadness or action or a sense of epicness and you want to fight something when gladiator's going crazy. Or you get a sense of victory or excitement or you want to dance. I mean, why? God has wired us this way. God made us this way. And Paul's quote from earlier, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, everything in it. That helps us see how to view the entire world. I mean, Natalie, my, my wife and I, we are, uh, for lack of a better word, we are addicted to Topo Chico. This amazing, just kind of bubbly mineral water from Mexico. I think it's amazing. I really don't even drink Coke anymore because of it. I have maybe one a day. She has like three. I mean, she has a real problem with it. And, you know, I'm working on my sermon. I'm studying this week. And as I'm sitting at my desk, there's a bottle of Topo Chico just sitting right there. And I took a big swig of it. And I just said out loud, oh, man, that's good. And then this verse, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Both were converging in my mind as I was holding that bottle of Topo Chico. And I just thought, God, you're amazing. Topo Chico is mineral water from Mexico. Since 1895, it's been extracted from this spring at the foot of a mountain, Cerro del Topo Chico. And God put it there. Like God put these springs and these rivers running underground and this mineral water is there sitting under the earth. God designed it and he loaded it with minerals that help brain function, spine health, bowel movements. I mean, you name it. Helps you sleep. And God put it all there. And here I am in Tomball, Texas, enjoying it. God's amazing. So you look at it and go, God, thank you. You, you designed that for this moment right now for me, and here I am. And then right next to my Topo Chico is another drink made possible because of a bean harvested in El Salvador, shipped over on a boat, roasted, ground, hit with hot water, and then enjoyed by me, coffee. And God made that for that purpose. El Salvador, Mexico. And then recently, we got new granite countertops in our, in our kitchen. And before we picked out the granite we wanted, the slab of rock we wanted, we toured the, the warehouse. I could have spent hours there. You want a great field trip? Go to a granite place. I don't know if they'll let you do that because they're probably expecting you to buy something. So you may want to let them know. I'm not buying anything. I just want to glorify God here for a moment. Can I do that? <laughs> we toured this warehouse. It was amazing. Just like football fields of rocks. And each that God had made, each rock was unique. Each one looked like a different impressionist painting. And while standing there, I thought, looking at all, I'm just looking at the, I stood at one end and I'm looking at the, the entire warehouse and each slab is different from all over the world. And I thought, God made all of this. Each one designed by him, each one precious to him. And the sales guy showed us pictures of how they get granite. I didn't know how they did this. It's harvested out of mountains. They go to a mountain, and they cut a giant, giant block of granite, cut out of this mountain. And then they take this giant block, some of them the size of this room, and they go through it with just like a, like cut, cut through it like a loaf of bread. Just shung, 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 shung. And then there's your rocks. And the granite we picked out is from a mountain in Brazil. So a slice of a mountain in Brazil, thousands of years old, designed by God, is now sitting in Tombaugh, Texas, where I opened my Topo Chico from Mexico and where my daughter makes her toaster strudels from Pillsbury. <laughs> and so now you can look at the counters and think, God's amazing. And there's little flecks and sparkles. I'm like, this is, I just stare at it. You see, there is a way to look at the world with God-soaked, Bible-sopped eyes. Because everything in our galaxy sends out satellite signals of God's glory. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And Paul's just telling us, we just need to get dialed in. And the reasons why we get so frustrated and why we get so selfish is because our fascination meter is low. I mean, think about it. Right now, the earth is spinning fast, and you're sitting still. I've been to a park where I put my kids on something and spin it. They don't stand still. How does this work? You got gravity, and you got Newtonian laws. and No, God's at work. Now, that's a wide-angle, how do we glorify God whatever, in whatever we do? Very narrow, very specific. Let Paul's example I think Paul's specific way that we do whatever we do to the glory of God is found in verse 32 and 33. Look at verse, so 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What's an example, Paul? 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Don't unnecessarily offend others. 33, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. These are not contradictory to live for the glory of God and then seek to please others. Those can feel contradictory, but they're not. It's a summary of the entire Christian faith. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And this is not, Paul saying, when I try to please everyone, this is not the, I'm a people pleaser and I really struggle with that. He says in Galatians 1, if I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. What he's saying here is, I do try to please everyone, meaning I don't try to live for myself first. I live for others. I live for their good, and I don't want to unnecessarily offend by my rights, by eating meat offered at idols, by making my political points known, by trying to win an argument. If you are trying to win an argument with an unbeliever and you're not trying to win them to Christ, you need to repent. And you need to change your life. If you win an argument, that's bad for you. Because they're probably not going to like you. And now you have definitely unnecessarily offended someone who is on their way to hell. We need a new value system. We don't back down from the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection ever. The inerrancy of God's word, that the Bible is in fact God's word, that Jesus is the only way, the Trinity, I mean, all the essentials. We never back down. Those will always be rocks of stumbling for the world. But there are some things that we must learn to ratchet back. Being overly political. I see some of your Facebook stuff. You can be overly political, and that's it's not going to be helpful. Being the person who always wants to bring up your talking points. You see, when you're always interjecting and not seeking to build up, you just want to be validated. You just want to prove your point. You just got to say something. Instead of, how can I build this person up? How can I win this person to Christ? Waving around a certain theological position amongst other Christians that will unnecessarily offend. Because Paul is telling us three categories of people. How, don't offend the Jews unnecessarily. Don't offend the Greeks, just the Gentiles, the unbelievers unnecessarily. And then don't offend other Christians unnecessarily. And we do those things because we want to be, we want to have the advantage. We want to be validated. We want to be seen as legitimate. I want to make sure I'm not wrong. And Paul says, let go of that. And let me give a really controversial example. I think what's happened in our country the past couple of weeks, and I think the Confederate flag is one of those things that Christians should really be thinking is this providing a necessary offense to a large segment of the population? We ought to be thinking, you know, what I don't need to have, I don't need to have this in my life. I need to be thinking, how is this offending and hurting my brothers and sisters in Christ or people that I want to know Jesus? And I know that having a Confederate flag doesn't mean you're a racist. But having one, something that isn't necessary to your life, that definitely is not necessary to Christianity. If that can be seen as offensive and harmful to any of our African-American brothers and sisters, we ought to say, good riddance. And I see some Christians arguing to keep it, and I can't fathom it. Making no biblical argument. It's all 
patriotic argument. It's all American hoopla garbage, and that has no place in the church of God. It's not motivated by grace. It's not informed by the gospel, and it's unacceptable. I just cannot imagine the Apostle Paul, who endured everything for the sake of the elect, who endured everything for them, saying, I'll endure it, I'll be shipwrecked, I'll be stoned, but I won't give up my stars and bars. That's too far. You can feel how stupid that sounds. And it's not about being politically correct. I had one brother, we were arguing over this, and he was trying to accuse me. Oh, it's just, you know, we're just trying to be, everyone's just trying to be politically correct. I don't think we need to seek to be politically correct. And I said, brother, I don't give a rip about being politically correct. I care about being biblical, and you do not. You care about fighting for your rights. You care about having and having what's yours. You do not care about laying down your rights for others, honoring your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I told this one Christian man who disagreed with me, why don't you go and ask a black friend of yours what he thinks about the Confederate flag? I guarantee you, you will not say the same things to him that you're saying to me. And he said, well, I don't know any. I don't know any black people. There's your problem. And so I asked two of my African-American friends. And I told him, I was like, guys, obviously I don't know what it's like to be an African-American man. (laughs) I know what it's like being a half-Mexican man, having racism from that way. But I, I want to empathize with you. I want to know how I can weep with you. I mean, like, tell me, I don't understand What do you think of them? And these are godly, amazing men that I admire so much. What do you think of them, Confederate flag? And both of them basically said the same thing. It's painful. It reminds me of the great racism experience in our country. Guys, it wasn't a generation ago. There were different water fountains. We are not past this. There is baggage. Our country and our people that we need to love and serve. They said it reminds me of white supremacy. It reminds me, one guy even said, of my father being abused and mistreated because of the color of his skin, being taken advantage of, having money stolen from him because he was in a segregated school and he never learned how to read. Even he's in his 70s and he still doesn't know how to read. Banks stealing from him just because they are black, being treated like they're not human. So they said, yes. When I see the flag, sometimes it really bothers me. And they said, I, don't, I know that for some people, it stands for Southern pride. I know that. But what they, said, what they both said, they can't fathom how a Christian would rather stand with Southern pride than stand with a black brother or sister who is being wounded by that Southern pride. And I know that some of you are probably thinking, but that's not what the flag means. It has the diamonds, this. Listen, white people are not allowed to tell black people how to feel about the Confederate flag. And to think otherwise is white supremacy. Let this white person tell this black person how to feel. That's racism. This is why Christian ethical thinking matters in all of life. Paul says, I try to please everyone. I want to unnecessarily offend everyone. I I want to live for their advantage. And just see why it's gospel-motivated, Christ-imitating lives. Look at verse 33. Why does he do all this? That they may be saved. This is Paul's reason for why he does what he does. I want them to know Jesus. I don't care about being right. I want them to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Paul is not concerned about being proven right. Some side issue He wants them to know Jesus, bottom line. And it's not bait and switch tactics. Well, I'll just be really nice to this person so I can trick them into believing in Jesus. That's not Paul's motivation. He gets that loving people is an essential element to them believing that Jesus loves them and that Jesus will save them, that Jesus will forgive them. And if we are the kind of people who are out for ourselves above all, we want, and we won't get uncomfortable. We won't sacrifice, and we won't see the baptismal waters spill on the carpet. And 11.1 really is a summary for the section. I think it's a summary of the portable Christian ethic. Actively build others up, glorify God. 11.1, imitate Jesus. 
Imitate Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus, Paul says. This is exactly what Jesus did. Romans 15, two through three. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, Father, fell on me. So Paul says, we look at Jesus and go, that's how we live in our lives. Jesus did not seek his own comfort for his own betterment, but ours. He actually came to seek and save the lost and give his life as a ransom for many. And he set his sights on the cross where he would lay down his life for his own, on, on his own accord to pay for our sins, ready and willing to save sinners. And so we look at the cross of Jesus and Jesus himself, and that shapes our lives. How do I live for Jesus in light of this? How do I imitate Christ in light of this flag issue? How do I imitate Christ in light of our Supreme Court ruling debate? How do I imitate Christ when my neighbor is driving me nuts? This is all Christianity. So don't miss the moments in your life today and tomorrow. And I bet some of you are upset with things I have said. Good. And don't think you misunderstood me. You, you, you understood me correctly. How can I imitate Jesus? This is the prevailing question for us. Not how can I imitate the founding fathers? Do I want this person to know Jesus or do I just want to be right? And I think all of us will discover that we are not past following the leader. Let's follow him, imitate him for his glory and the good of others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now would you would you help us as we confess sin? Maybe some of us in the room need to confess sin now. Anger, pride, Racism, impatience, unloving attitudes, fighting for self more than we're fighting for others. Lord, hear our cries. Hear our prayers. Help us to confess our sins and to believe that if we are faithful, that you are faithful to confess, to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now, Lord Jesus, would you help us? to remember that we are following you, that we have a document that supersedes the documents of our country, and we cling to your word. Help us, Lord, now. And may we actively, intentionally, and lovingly seek to build others up. And may we be motivated by the gospel. And may, may we see people get saved because of how we live and how we love, and how we speak of you. And it's in your mighty name we pray, amen.